What a gift to gather together this morning. Hearing your voices absolutely is beautiful. So thank you for being with us. To those who are joining us online, thank you for joining us this morning. We, we really do believe that God is doing something significant here in the life of Shades Mountain, and it is a privilege to be a part of it. We, we do want to let you know that the month of February is very special here in the life of our church. We are, we are gearing up for what we call our, our global impact celebration. You may heard the, hear the term GIC used all throughout this month, global impact celebration. This is our time where, where we gather together and celebrate what God is doing among our ministry partnerships, both here in Birmingham, around the nation, and around the world. So our, our, our GIC event will be happening at the end of the month here in February, and, and our, our ministry partners will be joining us. It's going to be a great week, a great time of celebration, hearing about some of the things that God is doing around the world through, through your faithful giving, through many of you going and serving with our partnerships. There are tremendous stories of God at work. And so in your, in your pew this, this morning, in, in the end of the row, there are these little yellow booklets, and this is a prayer guide for GIC, a prayer guide for the month of February as we prepare for this great time of celebration. So go ahead and pass those out. We want everybody in the room to have one of these so that you can see what we're praying towards and see some of our ministry partners who will be joining us in just a couple of weeks. Uh, in addition to the, the prayer guide that we, that we really are asking you to take home and pray through, we also will be doing in-person morning prayer times every Monday in the month of February as a part of our prayer focus for GIC. So beginning tomorrow morning, we're gonna, we're gonna just carry with the momentum that we had coming out of 21 days of prayer. And beginning tomorrow morning, each Monday in the month of February, we will gather right here at 6.30 in the morning in the worship center to pray and to lift our voices and to cry out to God, to ask him to move mightily in and through us as we get ready to celebrate the Global Impact Celebration Week. And so if you're able to join us, we'd love for you to join us for the morning prayer time as we hit our knees together and ask God to move mightily among us and through us for his glory. Now, in this series uh, of February, as we, as we ask this question, how will they hear, we are pulling this straight from the Word of God. This comes straight from Romans chapter 10. And so what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks leading up to GIC is we're going to be walking through Romans chapter 10 to see this, this incredible invitation that has been made available to all who will call on the name of the Lord, and then to see what is our part in this. What is our part in sharing this good news that the Bible calls salvation? So let me invite you to stand back up with me as I read from the Word of God. This has uh, become our custom here at Shades. We stand for the reading of God's Word. And the reason we do so is so that we can be reminded all over the room and even uh, as, as we gather together online, the Word of God is our foundation. We stand on the word of God as the people of God. It is the word of God that, that lays before us what God says is right and good and true. This is what we need to hear. So we stand in reverence, we, we stand in honor, and we stand on the solid rock of God's word. And this is what the scripture says, Romans 10. This is the apostle Paul writing to the early church in Rome, and he says this, brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. 
I'm going to stop here just for a moment to set the context. Paul is praying for his people. He's praying for his community. He's praying for the religious Jews that that he has been a part of. He wants them to experience the good news of what Christ has done. And then he says this, for I bear witness, verse two, that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the message of salvation. Romans 10 is all about the salvation that is offered through Christ. But here's where this is somewhat specific and may kind of catch us off guard a little bit. This is a message of salvation to those who are religious. Now, the message of salvation is offered to everyone. But here specifically in chapter 10, at the beginning of this chapter, we're seeing the message of salvation made available to those who are religious. Why do they need to hear the message? Well, let's pray and ask God to reveal to us what we need to hear as we consider this passage. Father God, as we stand before you now, we do pray that you would speak clearly. I pray, I pray that, that, that I would not get in the way at all, but that, that there would be clarity as to what your word reveals because we need to hear from you. So Lord, use this time for your glory. Use this time to, to give us greater understanding, greater knowledge of who you are and what you've done and use this time to give us greater clarity on the, the good news of the gospel, this message of salvation. What does this mean? And what does this call us to? Lord, speak. We thank you for this time as we look to you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. And you may be seated. And as you're seated, turn to somebody beside you and say, I'm so glad you're here because you need to hear this. I'm so glad you're here because you need to hear this. What do you need to hear? There's something we all need to hear this morning. As we step into Romans 10, just to give you a little bit of the framework of what is taking place in this letter that the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome, for the first eight chapters of Romans, the Apostle Paul over and over and over again lays out the good news of the gospel. He lays out the good news of why Jesus came and what that means for, for you and for me. And then in chapters 10, or excuse me, 9, 10, and 11, the Apostle Paul begins to, to talk specifically about this message of salvation and how it interacts with, with the religious Jews of the time. And, and there's some very robust doctrine contained in, in, in Romans 9, 10, and 11. In fact, you see things like, like God's sovereign election. You see things like predestination, but you also at the same time see, see man's response to God's call. And so there's this, this big, robust doctrinal conversation that is happening in, in chapters 9, 10, and 11 in this letter to the church in Rome. 
And I realize you may be here today and you're going, I don't even, I don't even know what those, those theological terms are and I don't even know what that means for me. Or you may be here today going, yes, let's, let's dive deeper and deeper into doctrine and theology. And here's what I, I want to say to both of you, those who, those who may have never heard those terms and those who are, are longing for, for more. Chapter 10 is all about the message of salvation. And it's all about the message of salvation being made available to anyone who is willing to hear. And so the good news is if you have theological training or you don't, the word of God through the inspiration of the spirit of God to the apostle Paul lays this out in such a way that it becomes an invitation to anyone who is willing to listen. So really, probably the most important question that we would ask this morning is, are we willing to listen? Verse one, I'll read it again. We see the, the heart of the Apostle Paul, the burden that he feels for his own people, the burden that he feels for the community around him, a very religious community that, that has not received this gift that the word of God talks about in the salvation from Jesus Christ. Listen again to the word of God as Paul writes this letter. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. There is this, there's this holy angst, if you will, in Paul. He knows so many around him, good religious people, good religious Jews, many of them religious leaders. He knows them name to name, face to face. He knows their story. And he knows that they have rejected what Christ has made available. And he feels this burden. His heart is breaking. These are his people. He, he wants them to know what Christ has done. If you, if you read what it says in, in chapter 9 of Romans, the beginning of chapter 9, you can see the, the angst of Paul, the anguish of Paul, having such a desire that his people would come to faith in Christ that he even says, hey, if it means that I would be accursed so that they could be saved, may it be so. He has such a desire for his, for his people, his community to, to, to come to faith in Christ. He says, hey, if it meant that, that I could even give away my salvation so that they could be saved, that's what I would do. And so I just have to ask right up front, as we begin to talk about the message of salvation, especially the message of salvation being proclaimed in a religious context, here we are in a church service in a religious Context, I just, I just wonder, what is our heart's posture towards those who are not here? Towards those who, who don't believe what, what you might believe, who, who, who don't agree with even what we're doing in this room and in this gathering today. What is your heart's posture towards those who disagree with you, towards those who are on the, the other side of the aisle of an issue from you? What is your heart's posture do you have a hardened heart, a frustrated heart, an angry heart at the way they live and the things they say, whoever they are? Or do you have a breaking heart, a burdened heart? What we see here in the Apostle Paul looking out at his community, looking out at his 
people begging God. My prayer to you, Lord God, is that they would be saved. This is his heart. Is it ours? Is this our heart? As the, as the scripture continues in verse two and three, we see why the apostle Paul's heart is so heavy. Look at what it says. He says, for I bear witness, I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now again, this is talking about a very religious crowd. Religious leaders, those who have a very high moral standard, those who are, who are seeking to, to provide an example through their, their faithfulness in their religious beliefs. They, these are the, the religious people that the word of God is talking about here. And what does it say? They have zeal, they have passion, but they don't truly know God. They are very dedicated in what they believe. They are very even dogmatic in the way that they live and the, the beliefs that they hold. But it's not according to a knowledge of what God has really done for them. And then verse three, and this is really, really challenging and really, really important for every single one of us to consider the word of God says, being ignorant of the righteousness of God, listen to this, and seeking to establish their own. This is what so often happens in the religious context, okay? What is it? Well, seeking to establish our own version of righteousness that we can live up to so that then we can feel good about the way we're living. Why does that matter? Well, we're going to see throughout this passage as we, as we turn our attention even deeper into the word of God here in Romans 10, there is a standard that God has set. There is a law that God has given. And the standard of that law, the standard that God has set is, please hear this, don't miss this, perfection, perfect obedience to the law. And so if you are religious and you are trying to fulfill the law, if you're trying to live according to the law, well, you better have passion. You better have zeal. You better be all in because if it's up to you to somehow achieve this standard, man, it's going to take everything that you've got. But if you're honest, at the end of the day, at the end of every day, you will know you have not lived up to the standard perfectly. And so the only way for many people then who are religious to live with themselves and to interact with others is to try and change the standard. The Apostle Paul is very familiar with this and feels so burdened for his people in this regard because this is exactly what he was living before he experienced and received the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. In fact, if you turn over to Philippians 3, turn there really quickly, we'll come back 
to Romans in just a moment. Turn to Philippians 3, just a, a few pages to the right in your Bible, or if you're on your Bible app, just scroll a little bit, you'll find it. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, the Apostle Paul gives his resume of religion, if you will. This is his resume of his religious works and his religious deeds. And this is what he says. This is where his burden comes from for his people because he, he knows what they are experiencing because he experienced it himself. He says this, if anyone thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh. He said, okay, if there's anybody among you that thinks you have reason to put confidence in your own righteousness based on the way you're living, he says, I had more. I had more. I was doing everything I possibly could to live up to a standard. And he listed all. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day. That was the, the right thing to do according to religious custom of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul says, look, I was at the top of the class. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness under the law, I considered myself blameless. And then he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. You see, Paul is saying, look, I, I know you think you're probably doing a good job and some of you are working really, really hard and some of you really take your religion very seriously and you check all of the boxes that you can check. But he said, I just want you to know I was doing more than you. I was trying to do everything the right way, and I was passionate about what I believed. In fact, I was so passionate about what I believed that if I believed someone was wrong, I wanted to kill them. How's that for passion? I was so passionate about what I believed, Paul said, that I looked at the early church, the followers of Jesus, and I said, no, they are wrong. They must be stopped, and I want to eradicate them. You can see an example of this in Acts chapter 7. There's the story of one of the first martyrs of the early church, Stephen, who was killed for his faith as a follower of Jesus. And the scripture says the people who were picking up rocks and throwing them at Stephen to kill him, they laid their coats at the feet of a man named Saul. This is Saul before he becomes the Apostle Paul, before he becomes the one who is the, the divine inspired author of, of so many books in the New Testament. This is the Apostle Paul, passionate about what he believed. And yet, we're reminded here that passion alone will never set you righteous before God. Zeal alone will never set you righteous before God because no matter how much zeal and how much passion you have about what you believe, there's no way that you can perfectly live up to the standard of God. So Paul knows that so many around him are trying so hard. They're, they're exhausted in their, in their religion, but they keep going. They keep trying because after all, if it's up to you to prove your worth to God, you better give it all you have. But Paul knows there's no freedom there. There's no true righteousness there. 
And so the only way that these religious people around Paul can even live with themselves is to somehow change the standard of righteousness. You see, if you believe you can measure up to the standard of righteousness to be good enough for God, you really don't understand the gospel at all. Because you see, the message of the gospel, here's why it's so beautiful, because it's honest. And it says to every single one of us, look, you need to realize that because of the sin in your life, you're, you're actually farther from God than you would ever allow yourself to believe. He is holy, he is perfect, he is just. We are not in our sin. We're nowhere close to holy, perfect, and righteous before God. But we often try and deceive ourselves, make ourselves feel better than we really are. And Paul says, no, 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 you've gotta understand the message of the gospel. It says you're actually further from God than you want to admit. And this is why you need help. This is why I need a savior because there's no way we can come up with righteousness on our own that would be worthy of God. Look at Romans chapter three. I, I am so grateful for Romans chapter three. It, it makes the message of the gospel so clear and so beautiful, even as it is so challenging and convicting. And in Romans chapter three, the apostle Paul is quoting from several different passages in the Psalms, in the Old Testament, I'm so thankful that he does that because he's connecting the Old and the New Testament saying, look, this truth, this message, it applies throughout all of the word of God. Listen to what he quotes in Romans 3, beginning in verse 10. He says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then he says their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The, the venom of asps is under their lips. And you've got to be really careful with that word in church. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And we read this list and we go, man, who are these horrible people? I mean, this is a, this is a tough list. This is a group of people that's really struggling here, right? I mean, good night. Ruin and misery are in their pathways. None of them are righteous. Who is this? And then in verse 19, we're given clarity. It says, now, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth, that's every single one of us may be stopped and the whole world, all of humanity be held accountable to God for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, why is this good news. How is this good news? Well, the only way it can be good news when you and I realize very clearly that we cannot measure up to the standard that God has set with his law, the only way this can be good news is if there is one who has met the standard for us and gives us his righteousness so that we can be called worthy in the sight of God. And that's 
what the gospel leads us to see. But you must understand the law has a purpose. The law's purpose was not for you to try and perfectly live up to the law. The law was given so that you and I would see we cannot perfectly fulfill the law. Then we can see our need for the one who does for us what we could never do for ourselves. And that's why in Romans 10 verse 4, the Apostle Paul says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You see, God did not give us a standard, his law, knowing we would break it over and over again just to mess with us or just to be cruel to us. No, he gave us the standard of his law, knowing we would break it over and over again so that we would see how much we need him. The purpose of the law was to show us our need so that we would long for the Savior so that we would receive what the Savior alone can provide. Please don't miss this. This is is why self-righteousness that runs so rampant throughout the church, this is why self-righteousness is so destructive. Because those who are self-righteous have convinced themselves they have no need. They're doing just fine on their own. They have set a standard and they can live up to the standard they have set. And so they're fine. They're good to go. And if you can't live up to the standard they have set, well, then you should be cast aside. But the problem with self-righteousness is it actually sets a standard that is lower than the standard of God. And so even in an attempt to say, hey, I really am paying attention to all the rules and I really am paying attention to doing all the right things, what we actually do in self-righteousness when we believe we have no need and we believe we can measure up to a standard, we actually have lowered the standard of God, showing we really don't value the standard of God at all. The law has a purpose, and the law was given to show us our needs so that when we see Jesus, we could see that Jesus did for us what we could never do. He lived a perfect and sinless life, perfectly following the law, and then gave his sinless life at the cross as a sacrifice for our sin. So that through his resurrection, we could receive forgiveness and grace, the gift of new life that comes through Christ alone. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 17, he says, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What an amazing claim. A claim that only Jesus can make. You see, the problem is not the law. The problem is not the standard that God has set. The problem is us in our sin. And so we need some help. We need the Savior. And that's what Romans 10 is laying before us. We go back to Romans 10, verses five through seven, and the Apostle Paul actually takes the listener back to when the law was given to Moses, and he says, listen to what took place 
And don't try and change the standard or believe that you can somehow live up to the standard. For remember, the law was given to show us our need. Look at Romans chapter 10, verses five through seven. It says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Here, when Paul takes us back to when the law was first given to Moses, he says, remember, the standard given to Moses with the law was perfection. So don't act like you can somehow measure up to this standard. Don't act like you're, you're going to be the one that's going to go grab Christ from heaven or you're going to lift him up from the abyss. You can't do that. The law shows you your need. I love what Chuck Swindoll writes about this passage. He says, God revealed his law through Moses as an expression of his righteous character. It was to confront humankind, saying in effect, here's the standard of righteousness I require. Be clear about this. There is a standard that God requires. And then Swindoll writes, thus, salvation by works is a theoretical possibility. However, like leaping high enough to enter heaven, it's a practical impossibility. No fallen human can achieve it. Jesus then becomes the end of the law for those who place their faith in him. You see, the only possible way that we can conclude that we somehow live up to the standard of the law, please don't miss this, is if we actually attempt to lower the standard. Again, this is, this is a problem that runs rampant throughout religious culture. When you realize that you can't live up to the standard of God's law, you either go into hiding filled with shame or you attempt to change the standard to become something you can live up to so that then you can feel good about yourself. Neither pathway will lead to salvation. Let me see if I can just give a, a basic example of this. I, I really enjoy playing the game of golf, and I really love playing the game of golf with my dad and my two brothers. We don't have the opportunity to do that very often, but every summer when we get away as a family, we, we always play a few rounds of golf. And, and here's what you need to know about playing golf with my dad and my brothers. Nobody in our group is really very good, but we all want to feel better about our game, Okay. And you got to know this too, when two preachers get together on the golf course, you just need to be careful. Just be careful, right? So here's what we do. We just, we just start changing the rules because that way it's more fun, right? So, so on the first tee, you get a mulligan and, and then on the second tee, if you need a mulligan, you can take it. All right, I mean, like we just keep giving each other mulligans. You hit that one in the woods, we'll just tee up another one. And then on the green, when, when we're putting, I mean, literally, if we get within 10 or 15 feet of the hole, we're like, oh, that's good. Pick it up. It's a gimme. I mean, I don't know if I've ever, I don't know if I've ever putted out a hole 
with my dad and my brothers. I mean, just, everything's good. We just give it to one another. If you're behind a tree, you know, off to the side of the fairway, just kind of move it over a few feet. Get a, get a swing where you're open and, and you can aim at the hole. And then, you know, we're having fun. We're laughing. And yeah, it's, it's more enjoyable this way because golf is hard. It's really hard. But at the end of the round, you know what we do? We add up our score. We go back to the beach house with the rest of the family. We're like, yeah, Sean, 81. I mean, you know, I had a few tough holes, but it was a pretty good day. Don't say a word about the mulligans. Don't say a word about all the gimme putts. Don't say a word about moving the ball in the rough or away from the trees. Yeah, Sean, 81. It's a pretty good day. Pretty good golfer. But you and I know that if by some miraculous invitation I had the opportunity to play in a PGA Tour event, which is a dream that will never come true, um, if I teed it up on the first hole with Dustin Johnson and Roy McIlroy and all these guys around and shank one, you know, off into the woods, I'm like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. This is, this is the way we play. And I just tee up another one. I'm like, I'm just going to take a mulligan. You know, it's the first hole. I'm a little nervous. You guys do this all the time. I don't do this a lot. I would immediately be laughed off the course, right? Be breaking the rules. I'd be disqualified. Here's the reason I say this. So often, we don't even realize we're doing it. And we're trying to convince ourselves that if I can just somehow follow these rules, I'll be, I'll be good enough. I'll be, I'll be called righteous in the sight of God. And we know in our hearts, we know when we're honest, we can't perfectly live up to the standard of the law. So we start to change the rules to make ourselves feel a little better. This is why people drift into self-righteousness. These are the things I can control. These are the things that, that say, I don't have any need. I'm doing good. I'll hold on to these things right here, ignoring all these other rules, changing the standard altogether, and completely missing God. For God has a standard. His standard is that the law must be perfectly fulfilled. And so what that means is that your only hope and my only hope is that we have one who fulfills the standard for us so that through his gift, through his perfect life, through his sacrificial death, through his resurrection, we can receive the gift of him fulfilling the law. We can receive the righteousness of Christ. And so it's through Christ and Christ alone that anyone can be called righteous. It's through Christ and Christ alone that anyone can be saved. And those who are religious need to hear this. And so Paul, very graciously, I believe, inspired by the Spirit of God, then says, let me just explain how simple this gift of salvation is to understand. And this is where we'll close here today. Because I want you to hear and know and understand how simple, how inviting this gift of salvation truly is. Look at what the word of God says, Romans 10, 8, and 9. What does it say? It says, the word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim because, 
Here it is, verse nine. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. How can someone be saved? It's this simple, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Well, it sounds simple, but please hear this. The language is very intentional. To confess with your mouth is to acknowledge I can't live up to the standard on my own. Jesus is Lord. He is the one that lived up to the standard. He is the one that did for me what I can never do. To confess with your mouth, Jesus is the Lord, is a step of faith, is an acknowledgement in humility that I need a Savior. And this is why there are many religious people who never experienced the gift of salvation because to experience the gift of salvation, you must acknowledge you need Jesus and you can't save yourself. Jesus is Lord. And then believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That means to believe, to believe in faith that your sin has been forgiven in the power of the resurrected Savior. To believe in faith that it's not up to you to save yourself. To believe in faith that Christ had to die on the cross and had to be resurrected from the grave if you are to be saved. Because remember, if it was up to you to save yourself, then the cross and the resurrection was just a royal waste of time. If you can save yourself in your own righteousness, you don't need Jesus at all. But when you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you're saying, I need Jesus. And when you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you're saying, I know I can't save myself. Jesus is my only hope. Have you confessed and believed? Have you received the gift of salvation? And if you have, if you have, has it softened your heart towards those who have yet to believe. Let me pray for us as we close. Father God, I'm so thankful for your word. It is living and it is active and it is beautiful when it dives deep into our lives. And so Lord, I, I pray, I pray that we in faith would trust you at your word. Lord, it's, it's so tempting for us, especially those who are religious, to go down this path of believing that somehow our works and our deeds and our religion can save us on its own, that, that we can somehow perform enough to be righteous before you. Lord, I pray, I pray that that lie would be put to death in our hearts and our minds. That we would recognize that our only hope truly is Jesus, the righteousness of God through the perfect fulfillment of the law through Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, for those who have never received the gift of salvation, I pray that today would be the day they would confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, that they, they need the Savior. And they would believe in faith that the Savior has been resurrected from the grave to once and for all forgive their sin forevermore. 
and to invite them to stand right before God as one called righteous because of what Christ has done. And Lord, I pray for for our church as we seek to live out this mission and as we talk about the mission throughout the month of February and we celebrate the mission through all of our partnerships and all of our going and our sending, Lord, there's so much to celebrate and I pray, Lord God, that you would use this time to, to give us even more of a heart and a burden for those around us every single day who have yet to believe. That we would say with the Apostle Paul, it's our heart's desire and our prayer that they would be saved. Lord, use us to that end. We praise you for the gift of salvation and we pray that you would use us to share it with those who have yet to believe. Thank you for this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.